Welcome back to our podcast. Uh, we're so thankful that you're spending time with us. And I want to say here on the outset, if you have any questions, you're always welcome to email us. Our email address is where does at outlook.com. W H E R E D O E S at outlook.com. Send us your questions or your comments. So, Matt, what's the first topic that we're going to cover? Well, what I want is for this to be a, a bit of a journey, um, at least for a little while as we're getting started here, rather than just randomly coming at different topics. So with that said, the first thing that, that really got me questioning things within the church, different doctrines and things like that, was to look around at the church and to wonder how we got where we are. Well, that, that kind of begs the question, uh, so where are we today? Well, somehow we as the church have gone from simple, cohesive teaching and unity across that teaching to a, a splintered mess. Um, the church has become a mass of different denominations, and within each of those different denominations, those mainline denominations are smaller, different denominations. And then within each of those smaller, different denominations, there are independent congregations that have their own set of beliefs and practices. Uh, for example, if, if you take a large heading like Baptist, within that you have Southern Baptists, Reformed Baptists, Free Will Baptists, Fundamental Baptists, and on and on and on it goes. Um, but even within the subsets, like Southern Baptists, you have a, a Rick Warren style of Southern Baptist, and then you have a, an Al Mohler style of Southern Baptists. And, and the two are very, very different in their theology and in their practice. Um, and then from congregation to congregation, there's going to be different variances. So not only is it is it possible now to find someone or somewhere who will teach exactly what I already believe or what I want to believe, many of those churches then or, or congregations are going to be more than willing to to morph and change whatever they teach to fit whatever the norms of the community around them are um, in order that they can reach their community, whatever that means. That really doesn't seem to fit the idea that there's one standard that could be called Christianity or the gospel. Uh, how are people today supposed to know which church is teaching the faith? Well, that's exactly what um, started us down this road and kind of compelled us to start taking a look at things. Uh, we wanted to ask the questions, what is the historic faith? What should a Christian look like? Um, how do we know who's right? Uh, Jude verse 3 says, uh, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Well, that verse would indicate to me that Jude thinks that whatever, quote unquote, the faith is, it has been completely worked out by the time he is writing, that it has been once for all handed down. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and that's the case for about 300 years after the resurrection and ascension, as we read the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Uh, so the questions then that we want to ask are, you know, how did we get from that unity of doctrine and practice to the mess that we have now? Um, where did these doctrines that, you know, frankly, didn't exist within the first 300 years, where did they come from? Uh, how did we go from fishermen and tent makers that were growing the kingdom to a point where ministry has now become a, a career that requires us to have multiple degrees in seminaries? Um, how did we get from believers who were willing to be burned alive or to be torn apart by wild animals to men and women who are going to leave the faith or leave a certain congregation because they're offended or the music isn't what they prefer or there aren't enough activities for their kids? I can see why we might call this a journey. We have a lot of history to sort out. Uh, 
in order to get back to the faith once for all handed down. The irony is that the answers are very obvious if we're just willing to look for them. And if we're willing to subject everything that we claim to believe to scrutiny, we can find the historic faith, but it requires uh, quite a paradigm shift for most of us. In order to examine all of this, we're going to look through history and see where some of these errant beliefs and doctrines come in. So so sometimes we're going to be a little bit heavier on the history aspects, and, and sometimes we're going to be a little bit more focused on the doctrine or the practice itself. But the goal is always going to be to get back to something that the early church or the apostles would recognize as the faith. Perfect. Let's get started. Where should we begin? Well, there is a point in history um, that, in my opinion, that I think we can look back at as just about the starting point of the problem. Well, knowing you like I do, I would guess you're talking about the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, the the Council of Nicaea is just about the time that I would say that the church begins to go off the rails, so to speak. But before we, we talk about the council itself, we need to understand that there's one man who actually, in my mind, is the one who sets the church on a terrible path that we're still still dealing with to this day. How can one man be at the root of such a big problem? Well, if, if that man happens to be the emperor of Rome at the time, uh, he can cause a lot of problems. You must be talking about Constantine, but I've always heard that he converted to Christianity. How could he be the problem? Well, he became the problem for the church by trying to be such a friend to Christianity. You're going to have to explain that. Well, I'll be glad to. Uh, let's start at the beginning with, with Constantine's supposed Christian conversion experience. In 312 AD, um, just prior to the battle at the Milvian Bridge, um, that's the battle that that would uh, where Constantine would capture Rome from his brother-in-law Maxentius. Just prior to that battle, Eusebius um, records that Constantine saw a vision at midday while looking toward the sun. Uh, he saw a cross-shaped trophy formed from light resting above the sun, and on that sign were the words, by this, conquer. Um, that night, supposedly or otherwise, um, Jesus appeared to him in a dream and said to build what he had seen as his battle standard. Now, there's a separate account, and I'm not going to get into all of the argument between the two accounts and who's right and who's wrong, but there's a separate account by Lactantius, who was one of Constantine's advisors, and he gives us a slightly different account written much closer to the event itself. Uh, Lactantius said that Constantine had a dream instructing him to paint the sign on his soldier's shields. Now, the sign's the same either way. Um, the sign is the, a Cairo. It's kind of an X with a, a, a capital P elongated there. And it's it's a sign that the Christians would use um, for Christ at that time. Now, whether you believe his biographer Eusebius or his advisor Lactantius, that symbol's the same. And Constantine goes on wherever he had it displayed to defeat Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. That victory causes uh, Constantine to convert because Constantine wants to worship the God who caused that victory. So we need to understand, though, that from the outset, Constantine is an is an avid sun worshiper. And along the course of, of the history that we have about Constantine, he has a lot of visions and a lot of dreams, um, upwards of a thousand dreams. Um, two years prior to that battle at the Milvian Bridge, while his army is marching, Constantine stops the entire army at a, one of the temples of Apollo and makes a sacrifice 
and claimed that the sun god had appeared to him in a vision and said that he would be the ruler of the world. So we've already got a little bit of a problem. He's staring at the sun at midday and sees this sign by this conquer, but he's also already had this sun god a couple of years prior has appeared to him and said that he's going to be the ruler of the world. You know, personally, I think that if, if he saw a vision or had a dream, it wasn't Jesus. Um, I think it was a familiar spirit or something like that because he's already a, a pagan worshiper at the time. Uh, but that's only my thinking. I might be wrong. I wasn't there. Um, but what I can say is that I don't think that Constantine was ever fully converted to Christianity. Um, the early church fathers are unanimous and clear in saying certain things that just don't fit Constantine. Um, the early church fathers would say that Christians could not join the military. It, it was absolutely out. You were disfellowshipped if you tried to join the military after having become a Christian. Um, if they were in the military at the time of their conversion, then they couldn't use the sword, even if it cost them their life. Now, it is possible for a Christian to be in the military at that time and not to have used the used the sword. We're at the time of the Pax Romana. So there's lots of roads being built and things like that. But they would say that if you were in the military and you couldn't get out, that you you could not use the sword, even at cost of your life. Um, that that kind of rules Constantine, the military conqueror. But anyway, um, they would say that Christians couldn't fight in wars. Christians couldn't sponsor gladiator games. They couldn't attend the theater. Uh, they couldn't hand down death sentences and many other things that that an emperor or a politician certainly would have done. There's no way he could get around it. And, th- and, and they would draw the conclusion then that, that Christians couldn't rule. Uh, they couldn't be a Caesar. Um, there's, we, we have comments that Christians would make great Caesars if Christians could be Caesars. Um, a little side note, we're going we're gonna to address all of those things that I just said in due course uh, but what I will say here is that uh, just a few decades prior to this, the church wouldn't have accepted Constantine if he didn't renounce his throne. Um, that's a pretty heavy witness at that time, but they, I, I can say that they would not have accepted him within the church. And another reason I don't think that Constantine was actually converted to Christianity is that for many years after that so-called conversion, he kept up a lot of his pagan practices. Uh, he had a statue of himself holding the Cairo standard built in the city. Uh, that statue had the inscription, by this sign, I saved and delivered your city. It doesn't get a whole lot more pagan than that. Um, several of the letters that he wrote after his conversion show him using pretty blatant sun god, Sol Invictus kind of language. Um, Sol Invictus continued to be pictured on coins that were minted by Constantine for years after his so-called conversion. Um one of the local city governments in Asia Minor dedicated a statue to him in the late 320s with an inscription reading to Constantine, the all-seeing sun, sun S-U-N on there. No true Christian up to that point would have had statues, and they certainly wouldn't allow worshipful, worshipful statements like that to be made about them. Um, so someone's going to argue Constantine closed some of the pagan temples and he did, but he closed those pagan temples and then promptly took their money into his treasuries. But he also at that same time set up some other pagan statues, which still exist today in, in, in his capital of Constantinople, um, which is Istanbul, Turkey. Now um, one of those is an obelisk and the other is a, an outright statue to Sol Invictus. 
even as late as the 330s, so we're talking a couple decades after his supposed conversion here, but even in the late 330s, a town called Spello in Italy asked for permission to build a pagan temple to him, and he allowed it. Um, He executed his 10-year-old nephew, his own son, and his wife. So where, where the confusion comes in about whether or not he was actually a Christian is in what he did for the church. That's where the argument happens. And I'm going to say that's the problem. He gave back property that had been taken from the Christians during the the, the persecution of the previous emperor, Diocletian. Um, he built ornate, elaborate cathedrals, basilicas, like the Lateran Cathedral in Rome that's still there. Um, he sent food rations to the Christians in North Africa. That, that was a hotbed of Christianity at the time. Carthage is there. You've got several of the early church fathers writing from there. It's, it's, there's a lot of Christians, and he sent food rations to those Christians. Um, his big thing that he did for Christianity was he issued the Edict of Milan, and that's what made Christianity legal within the empire. It's not yet the state religion of Rome, but now it's legal to be a Christian. Um, I think we need to see Constantine for what he was. Constantine was a politician walking the line and trying to keep peace between um, a mostly pagan bureaucracy uh, that was in the Senate at the time and those expanding churches. He's trying to curry favor with everyone. So for anyone who hasn't put it all together yet, how does all of that lead to the problems we have now? Well, for the first time in history, um, in the history of the church, the, the Christians are accepted into the society, or, or at least they're not running for their lives anymore. They're, they're on equal footing. Um, now they can have property, they can have land, they can have businesses, they can openly speak of the faith. Now they're going to have organization and structures and dedicated clergy and ornate places of worship. And all of those things did exactly what that politician, Constantine, uh, had hoped that they would. They're living in relative peace. The pagan and the Christian have have peace between them. And the Christians began to involve themselves in the society at large and the government. Just decades before this, pagan critics like like Celsus mocked the Christians for their separation from the culture. And now the Christians are on the verge of becoming fully integrated into that culture. Um, One of the most overarching doctrines of the early days of the faith was starting to fade, and soon that doctrine was going to be all but lost. The doctrine I'm talking about here is the doctrine of the two kingdoms and and separation from the world. We hear some lip service to that nowadays, but we don't have that doctrine really taught in a lot of our churches anymore. Um, I'm not going to take the time to to go through all of that today um, and discuss it in depth, but we definitely will on future podcasts. But now since they're not under the constant threat of death, the bishops or elders had the time and the ability to begin to um, theologize, if that's a word. And almost as soon as they started to have these theology discussions and to try to determine what the Bible says and, and how things function, a dispute arises regarding the nature of Christ. So once that dispute over the nature of Christ arises, in order to maintain the peace Constantine is going to call uh, for a council of the leadership to come together and answer the question. There's a lot wrong with a pagan emperor who supposedly had converted to Christianity 
there's a lot wrong with a supposed Christian politician leader in our day calling the church together to decide um, on a theological issue. Uh, that council that we're talking about is is the Council of Nicaea, um, and that the Council of Nicaea will be our topic for the next podcast. But what I want you to see right now is the divergence from uh, simple obedience to Christ and separation from the world, which which marked the early church in, in in all the early centuries. Now we have a Roman emperor calling the church together to decide what's going to be orthodox belief. Rather than just taking simple words from Scripture and obeying them, now we're going to come together and decide this group's wrong, this group's right. We're going to start getting orthodoxy together. And the, the trajectory of the church is now off. For about 300 years, the church was more or less completely unified in what it taught and practiced. But from this point on, things are going to start to be convoluted. And it starts to be okay to, to question Scripture. What does Paul really mean? What does Jesus really mean? Um, anyway, I, I could go on and on with that. Because of the unity that they had in the beginning is why we call the early church fathers the anti-Nicene father. The, the word there is anti, not anti, anti, A-N-T-E, meaning before. It's the pre-council of Nicaea fathers. After the time of the early 300s, things begin to splinter and, and new things get introduced into the faith, uh, once for all handed down. The conversion of Constantine and the Council of Nicaea started the church down a, down a bad road, but there's also one more event that's going to solidify the problem, and we're going to deal with that in a couple weeks also. Matt, I can see why you said that it was Constantine's friendship to the church that caused the problem. Is there anything that we personally, as individual Christians, can do to make sure we're not caught up in the same issues. There is. Um, we, we have some of the same scenarios continually pop up around us all the time. Um, for example, we have people like Donald Trump. However, however you feel about Donald Trump as a leader or whatever, we have people like Donald Trump who claim Christianity and they're friendly to the church. Listen, Donald Trump is not a Christian. Um, there's nothing about his behavior that would indicate to me that he's a follower of Christ. What Donald Trump is doing is the most politically expedient thing. And he's trying to curry favor with the mass numbers of the population who identify with the church. That's, that's all that is. And that's exactly what Constantine was trying to do. We need to not be fooled by these people when they pop up. Um, there are many examples that would fit in that mold as well. Kanye West, Justin Bieber, and the like. We need to look at their fruit. I'm, I'm not saying for certain that these are Christians or they're not. We have to examine their fruit. Had we examined the fruit of Constantine and compared him to what the church had taught from Jesus' ascension on, we would have seen that this is not a Christian. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. Um, the biggest uh, problem in the case of Constantine or or in our context, someone like Donald Trump is that the leadership of the church is too willing to be used if it alleviates the suffering or they think it's going to promote the gospel. If we can stop persecution, which is what was happening with, with Constantine, we're, we're stopping the persecution. If we can stop that, then whatever we have to do is good because then we'll be able to further the gospel. They're not thinking about what they're doing, who they're getting in bed with, uh, so to speak. Now, prosperity has always tripped up the church and it still is. Um, especially in a Western context. 
um, rather than just simply accepting what whatever these people say, we should be counseling them and discipling them and watching to see the fruit that comes from their profession. Um, but unfortunately, we get stars in our eyes, and, and then we're disappointed when those people end up doing damage to the church. Um, we don't need to judge their salvation. I can't judge their salvation. God judges the heart. But what I should be doing always is reproving, rebuking, and exhorting to see what happens in, in their Christian wall. That is a, a, a lot for us to think about. And I look forward to continuing this conversation next week. Uh, remember, if you have any questions or comments, please email us at wheredoes at outlook.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone. God bless.